0: You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Now, if you've been with our church for a while, we've done a few Hanukkah services over the years. This one may be a little bit different, but kind of similar. But I want to explain to you why we are celebrating Hanukkah. This is not even a biblical feast in the Bible. It's not commanded in the Old Testament. It is a a traditional Jewish holiday. A lot of people assume it's kind of like the Jewish equivalent of Christmas. That's how you see it often presented. And... On the one hand, there's a half-truth to that, in the sense that it's a very happy holiday, usually a time of coming together with the family, with meals, coming together to light the Hanukkah candles every night, a time of giving gifts and playing games like the dreidel and all things like that. And it's always, obviously, around this time of year. So there is that connection, but it's not, obviously, the same. Its roots, actually go much deeper than that, and we're going to examine that this morning, particularly we're going to examine that this morning in the light of what is going on in the world right now, and what has been going on for the last few months. And also, it is Advent, there is a connection between Hanukkah and Advent season that I will hopefully draw out through the end of this study. We can say, and it's often said, that without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas, And hopefully I won't explain that. I'm hoping by the end of this study you'll be able to figure that out for for yourself. Studying Hanukkah gives us insight into Jewish history, biblical history, biblical culture, Jewish culture, Bible doctrines, and the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. So there's um, plenty of good reasons why we do this in the church today, even though we're not Jewish in that respect. Hanukkah is traditionally celebrated. One of the things they'll do in Israel, all around the world, is that they'll eat what they call Safgan which is donuts. The reason, traditionally, because Hanukkah is known as the miracle of oil. Donuts are deep-fried in oil. That's the connection there, so you can see that. It's a yummy thing. So That's why we always do serve Krispy Kremes next door. There are hundreds of them next door. Also, because of some of the nature of the things that we'll be talking about this morning, it's going to be quite heavy in some respects because there is a heavy cloud hanging over the, the nation right now as they are celebrating Hanukkah, and it once again reminds us of the roots of Hanukkah and the reality that many of the Jewish people have to live with. We will be taking a special Hanukkah offering this is, will be taken offering for the Joshua Fund. Joshua Fund are a Christian ministry that I work with that basically support believers in the land and surrounding areas. And they are doing a lot of wonderful work right now in making sure that aid and things like that is distributed to believers in the land primarily, but also serving unbelievers and being a witness for Christ in the land right now. Or there's a cash offering by the donuts next door. Let me just pray before we go any further into this. Father, we'd ask now as we turn our our hearts toward these things, Lord, that you would speak to us through your spirit. Give us ears to hear, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So yes, like I said, some of this is going to be quite heavy because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through the history of the first Hanukkah, which took place 2nd century BC. But I'm going to parallel it with events that have happened in the last few months. And hopefully you'll see the parallels as we go through. I'll warn you, there are a few distressing images that you may find distressing. So it's probably nothing you haven't seen if you're on social media or anything like that. There is a typical expression, Jewish expression, about Jewish holidays where they say they tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. And obviously it's slightly humorous, but it does also speak to the tragic reality of the history of the Jewish people. And in case you may think this is something that is just in the past, Hanukkah, second century BC, that was thousands of years ago, it is very much a lesson for us in the present too. You may be familiar with this famous picture taken in 1932 by Rabbi Posner, his wife actually. It's in Germany, in the headquarters, right opposite the Nazi headquarters in Kiel, Germany. And she took this photo just before, in 1932, so just before on the rise to power, really, and before everything really kicked off. On the back of this photo, it's a very famous photo, it has this written. Death to Judah, so the flag says. Judah will live forever, so the light answers. The family left Germany, the Posner family, and today they still light that Hanukkah in in Germany, the Jewish community. They still have this Hanukkah, there's some lovely photos of them still doing it. But I'm going to focus on this little death to Judah, so the flag says Judah will live forever. So the light answer is going to kind of be our theme for this morning. I came across this recently by a Jewish artist. Again, I told you, it's a famous picture. He's repainted it, and he's added an extra flag, as you can see that there. That is the Hamas flag next to the Nazi swastika flag there. Because this is another flag that says the same thing. It also says, death to Judah. And the Hanukkah candles answer, Judah will live forever. That's how the light answers. And that is very much our theme. It's a very powerful image. Judah will live forever, so the light answers. That is what the Menorah speaks to us of. And what is so interesting? We want to think about this theologically too, though, don't we? What does the Menorah represent? The Menorah, we first see it in the Bible, don't we? It was commanded by God that the Israelites had to make the Menorah for the tabernacle and also for the temple. It was the only light that was within that building that they had there, and it represents the Messiah, the light of the world. We'll get into all that a little bit later. So we could look at this. Judah will live forever because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the light of the world, lives forever. That is the point, logically, as believers in Messiah, that we can bring out as we go through that. So with that in mind, we are going to light the Hanukkah candles. Now, it's actually the the fourth night of Hanukkah. Hanukkah started Thursday evening. It's the fourth night of Hanukkah. And traditionally, Hanukkiah will have nine candelabra branches on it. One it's an eight-day holiday, one for the eight days. And the one in the middle is the servant. Our one is just a traditional menorah, actually, because it's the only big one we could get. We do have a Hanukkah one, but it's tiny, you wouldn't really be able to see it from the back, so we've decided to do that. So we will light the candles and say the traditional blessing. So I'm going to ask my mum to come up, and we will say, I'll say the traditional messianic blessing, I'll say it in Hebrew, and then we can read it all in English together. So as someone is lighting the candles, it is traditional to say, Baruch Atah Adonai, Melech HaOlam, Asher lanu Chagim Chukot Lesimcha. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given to us holidays, customs, and seasons for gladness, for the glory of the Lord Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. And traditionally, on every night, you only light one candle at a time and you build up to the eight days. Now, what we're going to do, I want to take you back 2,000 years before, well, 2,000 years back to the time of Christ and then a couple hundred years still before that. And we're going to look at the history of Hanukkah and we're going to compare it with recent events. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to speak quite forthrightly and frankly about some things as we go through this. One thing that I've noticed as everything is going on, there's been a lot of voices speaking for one particular side and there's been a lot of things that are said that are not good. There's been an absolute silence from the church in this country on these issues. So I think it is a time where we do need to see some of these things. We need to think about these things clearly. We need to understand what is going on. And as I've said many times, what you're seeing play out in the world today is not just a 21st century land dispute. It is much more than that. It is a spiritual thing that is going on, and we want to get to the bottom of this. But let's go back to the year 333 BC. You remember this time. Alexander the Great, the great warrior general... He conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. He established the Greek Empire. And one of the things that Alexander was extremely good at is he promoted Greek culture, or what we call Hellenistic culture, all across his empire. He did a unified language. He made Greek the official language. He tried to get everyone to adopt Greek customs, Greek philosophy, Greek entertainment, Greek games, Greek leisure, all these kind of things. He did a good job at that. Alexander himself didn't mind the Jews too much. He actually was quite favourable towards them. But when he died... You remember he split his empire between his four generals. And this is actually something that was prophesied in the book of Daniel, if you remember that. You have this history detailed for us. He split his empire between his four generals, and we won't go through all of them, but basically there was the Seleucid Empire, and from that empire there was a man who came eventually called Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes. And that is where the story of Hanukkah begins. I'm going to read to you from the book of Maccabees. Now, just to be very clear with you, the book of Maccabees is not a a biblical book. We don't think it's inspired like the rest of the Bible. It's a a Jewish historical intertestamental book that was written between the Testaments. It's fascinating historically, and it tells the story of Hanukkah. So we're going to use it. just want to make that caveat before we go on. I will use it to show the history of the first Hanukkah, and as we go through, we'll make some parallels with today. So this is the time period. So verse 10 in 1 Maccabees, it says, from. From them came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. So he took the title Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. I always like to point this out as we're studying this at the time of Christmas, where we are celebrating the one who came as Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Jesus Christ, it was one of the names of the Lord. Emmanuel, of course, means God with us, doesn't it? It's a very similar thing. So here you see a counterfeit and you see the genuine. An empire, a leader, calling himself God manifest, forcing people in many ways to worship and follow him. And then you have the true son of God, the humble one born in a manger at this time. The Jews gave Antiochus a nickname. They called him Epimanes, which means the mad one. Antiochus was quite mad when you get to see some of his history. He was the mad one. Hellenization reached its fruition really under him. And he got to a point where he was so fed up with the Jewish people because they were unwilling to go along with a lot of his reforms because they had the law, the Torah, and they, they had a different worldview. He got quite upset with them, and he wanted to actually expunge them as a people and remove their uniqueness from his empire. So let's continue the story. It says, After subduing Egypt... Antiochus turned back in the 143rd year and went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community, rulers and elders groaned, young women and young men became faint, the beauty of women faded. Now I'll be honest with you what we were doing with this study, and I'm going to compare this to some of the modern day events, it's been quite emotionally challenging to do, um, but I feel it's necessary that we do something like this today. Here you see Antiochus. He came into the land of Israel and it says he shed much blood when he came into the land of Israel. And of course, I won't show you too many graphic photos, but there are some. We have seen very recently another enemy of Israel come in and shed much blood. Israel mourned deeply in every community, it says, 200 BC, second century BC. And the beauty of women faded. That's an unusual phrase. That's a poetic way of saying the usual beauty of a woman's face was overcome by a face of grief. Let me show you what that means. These are just some pictures from some of the communities around the kibbutzim that were attacked by Hamas. And this is almost an exact parallel in our modern day of what it would mean by the beauty of women faded. Uh, That's what it's referring to, faces that are overcome with grief by this invader coming into their land. Let's move on. Two years later, the king sent to the cities of Judah a chief collector of tribute, and he came to Jerusalem with a large force, Deceitfully he spoke peaceable words to them and they believed him. But he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls and they took captive the women and the children and seized the livestock. So Antiochus spoke deceitful words of peace and then suddenly fell upon the city. Now let me talk a little bit about that phrase there. Deceitfully speaking words of peace. Speaking words of peace when you have a different motive. You may have seen the news incessantly calling for a ceasefire, a ceasefire, a ceasefire. The Western media parroting the the media from the Middle East in many ways. People marching in the streets with signs like that, and it is in a moment like this where the ignorance of the West, if I can say it frankly, particularly those left-leaning liberals who believe this is a human rights issue, and they're marching with Hamas supporters calling for a ceasefire. I'll come back to them in a moment, but let me try and help you understand this a little bit. Most will try and pretend that their call and their desire for a ceasefire is an attempt so we could get aid into the city. And... That's a good thing. not going to deny that. But let's not allow the West to interpret what the East means by that phrase because the East have a very different understanding to what it means by a ceasefire. There is a term for a ceasefire in the Islamic world. It is the term that is used by Hamas and many of the Islamic nations when they talk about these type of things. And it is a different concept. Most in the West do not understand this. Many of those people marching on the streets do not understand this. If you've actually seen many of the interviews with people marching, they don't seem to understand anything. They don't really even know what the two rivers they're singing about are. Oh, they, they just don't know anything. But hey-ho, hey, that's where we are today in our nation. There is a term in Islam called a hudna. That is the term. It means a temporary calm or a temporary ceasefire. And That is the term that is referred to. It's a very different concept than what we might think. When you hear Islamic organisations like Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood and these kind of things speaking about a ceasefire, that is what they're referring to. It has a history and a context in the Islamic world which we have to understand. The contemporary usage that you'll notice is always referring something to do with Israel and the surrounding Islamic nations. (coughs) Always Israel and the surrounding Islamic nations. In 627 AD, Muhammad conquered Medina. And in the process, he eradicated the remaining Jewish population that were there first. The original name of Medina was the town of Yathrib. It was a Jewish town. Just giving you some more context for these type of things. Muhammad took over, and he wanted to take over Mecca. As you know today, Mecca is the centre of Islamic worship. At this time, Muhammad did not control Mecca. The Meccans still had control of that. But he wanted... He, was not, he wasn't really powerful enough to take over Mecca at this point. So he came and made an agreement with the Meccans in 628 A.D. and it's called the Treaty of Hudabaya. That's where the term Hudnah comes from. He signed a 10-year peace treaty with the Meccans that he would not attack as long as he was allowed to come and worship at the Kaaba. He used this time of peace to build his forces until he had an army of over 10,000. And then what do you think he did? In less than two years he had enough to do this. He attacked Mecca and he overtook it. A hudna amounts to a temporary truce. When modern day people reference a ceasefire in this respect, often what they mean is a time of cessation of hostilities in order to build their strength to continue the mission of jihad, which is to spread Islam over the world. That is how they're using it. And we misunderstand that. Most of our politicians misunderstand that. Most of the people marching in the street misunderstand that. He attacked Mecca and he took it over with a famous battle called the Battle of the Trench, where he took out all the remaining Jewish inhabitants of the land. He had them kneel in front of a trench and he beheaded them all, 800 of them in one go. That is Muhammad. What he wants what Muhammad was doing was spreading what we call an Islamic caliphate. This is not just a religion, this is a geopolitical religion that seeks to dominate the world, and a hudna, a ceasefire, can be useful for that purposes when they need time to regroup, to gain power. Okay. So you understand how silly this is sometimes when Western leaders are using the same terms, thinking they're talking about aid and all things like that, it's not. Two different things going on here quite often. This is Islamic theology. The West needs to understand this. We can stand there, we can use words like diversity, equality, and multiculturalism, whatever you like. However, it doesn't change the fact that their theology goes deep in their worldview. All the way back to the time of Muhammad here, and they reference it all the time. This becomes especially clear in the war with Israel. Like I said, this term, Ahudna, is always used in relation to Israel. So Hamas just like Antiochus wanted to bring everything under the control of their empire. For Antiochus, it was his empire. For Hamas, it is an Islamic empire, a caliphate. They don't hide this, in fact. They're actually pretty, pretty open about this, Hamas. You can read the Hamas Charter. Let me just read to you a couple of items again. This is the Hamas Charter. Again, I'll remind you, Hamas is an elected government. They are a terrorist organisation, but they're a terrorist organisation that actually control as a government in this respect. Not so much anymore. But Israel, this is from the preamble to the Charter, it says, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. Article 11, the land of Palestine is an Islamic waqf, that means a holy possession of Islam, consecrated for future Muslim generations until Judgment Day. No one can renounce it, or any part, or abandon it, any part of it. There is no solution for the Palestinian question, except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals and international conferences are all a waste of time and vain endeavours. You see, that is what they believe, that's the official founding document of their organisation and their government. And you see how laughable it is when you see what our governments talk about as solutions in the Middle East. Cross-purposes. It's just not going to happen when you're dealing with that. Israel understands this, of course, but the West somehow seems to deny this. It is a tactic to buy time until an opportunity comes to advance the house of Islam by jihad. Islamic theology separates the world into two different things. The house of peace and the house of war. Those who have submitted to Islam and those who have not submitted to Islam. Let's continue with the story of Antiochus. It says he plundered the city. He suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow, and destroyed many people in Israel. He plundered the city, burned it with fire, tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. They took the captive, the women, the children, and seized the livestock. These are just some of the photos of many of the kibbutz that were nearest the Gaza border. As you can see, one of the things that they did is burn them with fire. Just like Antiochus did when he stormed into Israel all those years ago. And of course, one of the most tragic things that has really happened is that last line there, verse 32. It said, They took captive the women and the children. And you know, this is probably one of the hardest things to watch as we've seen many of these things. This is exactly what Hamas did. No one was spared women, children, elderly, Holocaust survivors, and men. They took them captive. Here are some images. I just want to raise to you a couple of issues here. You may not have followed this, but this is, again, some of these people being taken hostage, and those red arrows are above photographers, press photographers from Reuters and CNN, who were somehow there on that morning and ready, and they were just willing to stand there and take photos and watch as these Young girls were taken captive across the border into Gaza. That raises many ethical questions about our journalistic and our media today. But I won't digress into that now. Many of us have been grieved, and the world thankfully has caused a small outcry about how little support Israeli women have received by the international community during this time, in light of what is overwhelming testimony of some of the worst abuse that you could really imagine or concoct in such an evil world, literally on camera, but yet the world was still willing to try and doubt that these things happened. The UN, disgraceful. The BBC, disgraceful. Every supposed feminist organization in the Western world, I would say, disgraceful, and their silence has very much exposed their true colors for what they are. There was nothing new under the sun. This is the same spirit behind this that we saw in the days of the Greek Empire with Antiochus. This is the same spirit. If you look at my studies, the unseen world from our Revelation studies, I'll show you that the spirit behind this is none other than Satan. I remind you, why does he hate the Jewish people so much? Because they brought the Messiah into the world. That's the point, yeah? Remember, we saw that picture of the dragon, Satan, just waiting in front of the woman, waiting for the Messiah to be born so that he could destroy it. This is what we see going on here behind the scenes. Let's continue. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the nations accepted the command of the king. And he added, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and they did evil in the land and they drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. Now here is an interesting thing. As Antiochus persecuted the Jews using both violence, force, but also law, as he had the power to command law, he commanded that all people follow him. And here's the thing, many of the nations did. Many of the people did follow him. One of the most shocking things that you may have seen, or I've seen anyway, as we've seen this going on over in Israel, is the reaction of the nations across the world. Many followed Antiochus, many have joined the cause of Hamas. Demonstrations and riots all across the world have exposed the fruit of this indoctrination. Now, let me be very clear these are not pro Palestinian marches, if we're honest. Yes, I know there are many innocent civilians in Gaza, but these are pro Hamas and anti-Jewish marchers. And it's fairly easy to prove that by just listening to what they're saying and seeing a lot of the signs that they're holding and also seeing who's involved. I'll show you a few of these things in a minute. This was just from yesterday, I believe, that one there. As you remember, this one a few weeks back, massive march there, pro-Palestinian. Just to give you an idea, you can see, this is actually from New York, this one, Palestine will be free by any means necessary. And they say what they mean, and many interviews have shown that they are willing to accept what Hamas did on October the 7th is justified under the any means necessary. This was one just from yesterday, actually. This was just down the road from St. Paul's Cathedral. You can see there the sign, the final solution, and that is pushing Israel. And you can't quite see it on there, but the, the flag is turned into a sea. This is the, the common chant from that time in the world Israel will be pushed into the sea. Many leaders have said that over the years. Uh, of course, it hasn't happened. And this was also joined with chants, from London to Gaza, let's globalise the Intifada. Now, I want you really think about that. From London to Gaza, let's globalise the Intifada. An Intifada is a violent uprising against Jews wherever and whenever they may be found. That is in the streets of London, outside St. Paul, Paul's Cathedral. Keep the world clean. You may have seen that photo going around of some of these marches. A few different versions I've seen of that. There's a dustbin with a Jewish star in it. This is the sort of thing that is going on. It's a very small photo. I couldn't get a high-res one of this, but this is, again, from London. You can just about see that those two ladies have stickers on their backs. What those stickers are, they are stickers of hand gliders. If you remember, on October the 7th, Hamas terrorists hand glided into Israel, and the specific location for those hand gliders was that music festival filled with 20-year-old Israelis where they did the worst and most atrocious things. People marching in the streets with stickers on their backs. This is what these marches are all about. And if you don't believe me, let me introduce you to a few of the leaders. This is Mick Napier. He is head of the Scottish-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. He said that though the news coming from Israel on October the 7th was absolutely amazing. He talks about resistance fighters and par- of paragliders. He called them astonishing and inspiring. Manchester Palestine Solidarity Campaign. They called the terror attack a heroic move by brave fighters. Palestinian Action are a leading group in the UK. Their founder Richard Bernard. He spoke at a rally on October the 8th, the day after. He says this. He says people need to take this attack as inspiration adding that the Hamas operation on Israel on October the 7th needs to be repeated over the whole world. Many of you have probably seen the Palestine Solidarity Campaign in the streets town centre of Hastings. There's a lot of them. Don't be fooled. There is much more behind it. You don't really have to dig too far to find that out, except many people are not willing to do the work. On and on and on, I could go with this sort of thing. Of course, I would say that the media is directly responsible for parroting the Hamas propaganda, and refusing to report on things correctly. Especially guilty of this, unfortunately, is the BBC. You've probably saw the debates. They refuse to even refer to Hamas as terrorists. They accept figures from the Hamas government without even checking them. But when it's on the other foot, they they require extraordinary evidence of the things that have happened to Israel. Let's move on. Many of the people, it says, Everyone who forsook the law, join them. And they did evil in the land, and they drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge that they had. Israel's life is one of constantly running to bomb shelters. Not just since October 7th, this, go- this has been going on for years, but most people don't really seem to care. Now that is actually, every one of those red dots is a missile warning. They have an app in Israel that you have on your phone, it's called the Red Alert, whenever a missile might be coming. When you, see, when you get a red alert, you have to run to a bomb shelter. That's it. This is why Hamas, when they sent hundreds of rockets over at the same time, everyone was going to their bomb shelters. You can see this is civilian life. Most people will have them in their home if they're rich enough. If they have an apartment block, there's always one in the building. Their bus shelters are designed to be like makeshift bomb shelters too. This has been their life. One of the things we know is that what Hamas did on October the 7th is they would walk up to these bomb shelters and throw grenades in. This is the sort of thing that Israel were dealing with. It's very similar to what Antiochus was doing in the ancient world. It says now, on the 15th day of Kislev, in the 145th year, they erected a desolating sacrilege on the altar of Burnt Offering. They also built altars in the surrounding towns of Judah and offered incense at the doors of the houses and in the streets. They kept using violence against Israel, against those who were found month after month in the towns. On the 25th day of the month, they offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. So this is describing what Antiochus did when he broke into their land, he stormed into their temple and he desecrated the altar by killing a pig on it, which of course was not a kosher animal, again, designed to destroy the Jewish religious worship there. And i remind you, this is a long time ago we're talking about now. They kept on using violence against Israel. You read the accounts... What is it? It's murder, it's rape and it's kidnapping. Exactly the same thing, the same spirit is behind this. And For those who think, like I said, that what we see today is just a simple geopolitical border dispute in the Middle East, there are many land disputes and border disputes going on across the world today. None of them garner such international attention as this one. None of them have thousands upon thousands of people marching in the streets. Many more people are dying in different disputes across the world too. None of them are causing people to come out and march in such ways. There is something else going on here. The world does not see it, but we must see it because we have the revelation of the Lord that tells us why. And it is our job to stand and speak for these things. And if you think this is just about actually Israel, as in the land, let me tell you what's been going on across the world. Anti-Semitic hate crimes are up in London by 1,350%. That's a shocking amount. There's things happening all over the world. This was another really sad story. Jewish students were locked in a library in New York, of all places. It was kind of a stronghold for Jewish life, New York, as protesters stormed their university. Mobs in London filmed walking around saying that they are looking for Jews, that they want blood, whilst being escorted by our police. Across the world, we are seeing signs like this go up outside many shops, Jews not allowed. We had a lot of this in the 1930s. It's very similar sort of thing. This is what Antiochus did too. He banned the Jews from owning businesses. He banned them from entering their synagogues and doing stuff like this too. Jewish homes are once again being marked across the world. You may have seen this news report. An anti-Semitic mob stormed an entire airport in Russia a Muslim part of Russia, because they heard that a plane from Israel was landing there and they wanted to hunt the Jewish people. And the airport completely lost control. Thankfully, the airport, the plane was warned and no one got off the plane at this time. I wonder what would have happened if they did. But this, again, is what we see here. What did it say? They kept using violence against Israel. This has been Satan's tactic for a long time. But let's continue the Hanukkah story now. You see, so one thing that Antiochus did after he'd taken control, obviously it wasn't instant, it took a little while, he sent his people to all the surrounding towns of Jerusalem and Judah, and he had them all set up altars, and he made all the leaders of each particular town come out, and he said, you've got to sacrifice on this altar, or else we're going to kill you. That's basically what he said to them. One of these towns was called Moadin. It's a small little town. The troops from Antiochus arrived there, they built an altar, and they forced the priest to sacrifice pigs. One of the priests in this city was a man named Matthias. He had five sons and he refused to do what the soldiers asked and instead, at this moment, he turned on the soldiers and he killed one of them. He knocked down that pagan altar and he cried out, follow me, all of you who are for God's law and stand by the covenant. And it was those words that started a rebellion. Matthias and his sons fled to the mountains, followed by many of the faithful of Israel. Matthias died a year after that, and his son Judas led the revolt. Yehuda HaMachabe, Judas the Maccabee, meaning a nickname meaning the hammer. This man continued with his brothers to lead a rebel army, basically, against the mighty Syrian and the Greeks in this respect. He had many victories until finally the Syrian Greek army was fed up with him and they sent 40,000 troops to try and quash this rebellion. However, miraculously, these few rebels overthrew this massive Syrian-Greek army and took back Jerusalem. Three years later on the day, the 25th of Kislev, they retook Jerusalem. Upon entering Jerusalem, as the Maccabees tells us, Judah and his brothers and priests, they were dismayed to see the temple was desolate. Remember, it had been made unclean by killing a pig on it and left to rot. The altar were profaned, the gates were burned, the holy courtyard was overgrown with weeds. So they set about making new temple furniture. They wanted to rededicate the temple. Now, according to the Talmudic tradition, that's the rabbinic tradition, when they entered the temple to try and get the menorah started up again, they found only one cruise of oil. The big menorah that they had in the temple, it was oil, It was an oil fed, but they needed enough for eight days for their rededication service. And the miracle of oil that I referred to earlier is a reference to the fact that this one tiny cruise of oil, only one, one day's worth, lasted for eight days. That's the miracle of oil. However, as most people will tell you, the miracle of the oil is only mentioned in a much later Talmudic tract, about 500 years after Christ, actually. So it's much, much later. So we have to look, what is the real reason why Hanukkah is an eight-day festival? And this is what is interesting for us as believers. I'll read to you just a small passage from Second Maccabees. I don't have a slide for this, so I'll read it to you. This will tell you why Hanukkah is an eight day festival, and it'll also tie us in to the New Testament from where I'm going after this. It says the sanctuary was purified on the twenty fifth of Kislev, the same day of the same month as that was, as which foreigners had profaned it. The joyful celebration lasted for eight days, like the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they recalled how only a short time before they had kept the feast while living like wild animals in the mountains and caves. So carrying garlanded wands and flowering branches as well as a palm fronds, they chanted hymns to the one who so triumphantly achieved the purification of the temple. So what you see here is that Hanukkah, this eight-day festival, was actually just a belated celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we know is a biblically commanded feast. This is much more likely than the miracle of oil because this is the same thing that Solomon did when he dedicated his temple. It's also the same thing that Ezra did when he rededicated the temple. They had a delayed celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. These two holidays are very much linked, and they are associated with the temple, which will become significant to us now as we move into this final section here. So this is the history. There are many lessons we could draw from that. We would speak about the pressure from the culture to assimilate Antiochus basically said, I want you to all follow what I am doing without raising questions. If you do, you're going to be killed. And he said to the Jews, you need to abandon your faith or else you're going to be killed. It is tempting to join the vast mass of humanity sometimes. Go with the tide. But unfortunately, as believers, often we are called to go against the tide simply because we know that we have the revelation and the truth that Jesus has given us. For us, maybe it is tempting to join the mass of those capitulating to all the cultural lies and the pressures that we have, to join the chorus of anti-Semitism that we see going on in those marches. This is what the Maccabees, this is what Hanukkah is all about. The rebellion was about the preservation of God's people. It was about resisting compromise. It was about the triumph of light over darkness. To, to this day, the history of the Maccabees is very prominent in the thought of Israel. I just read this just yesterday the founder of United Hatzalah. Hatzalah are a volunteer emergency response organization that they have in Israel. They have a few of these things because they deal with this stuff so much they have to have extra emergency services. And he said this about their duties after October 7th. He said, I really think the Maccabees are an example of what United Hatzalah is because they took responsibility to protect the Jewish people and they were volunteers, he said. The Maccabees told themselves that if they did not protect the Jewish people, if they did not fight, there would be no Jewish people anymore. If it wasn't for them, we would not exist today. You see, that is the significance of Jews lighting the menorah. This is why one of the first things they did when they took over Gaza Square, the stronghold of Hamas, is they brought a menorah into it. And they had a a Hanukkah lighting ceremony there. In their mind, light overcoming the darkness of that point. However, at this point, I want us to think a little deeper about this. Because we know, actually, from the Bible, from the Old Testament, the Israelites were not supposed to put their hope in a Judah of Maccabee. They were not supposed to put their hope in their chariots, in their strength, and in their IDF, in their forces in that respect. They were supposed to trust in the Lord for their security. And we have to speak clearly into this issue, too. This is the mistake that the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus made. They were looking for More of a political messiah in the character of Judas Maccabee than they were, maybe, for a suffering sire who would come and die for their sins. That is why they kept having this question. However, the Bible promised that a light would come to Israel. A light was going to come to Israel, and it was going to be the light of Messiah. And it was a light that would take them from darkness into light. However, firstly, this was referring to a spiritual darkness into a spiritual light, where they would once again be following the Lord. The Messiah had to deal with the ultimate darkness of the world, which is sin, firstly. Isaiah 9 speaks of this. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You see, Hanukkah is called the festival of lights. It's again this theme of light and darkness. Now this is a famous chapter, Isaiah chapter 9. It begins here with this promise of light and darkness. And then a few verses down, In Isaiah 9, verse 6, we have one of our famous Christmas verses. This is the connection between Christmas and Hanukkah. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. You'll see that on Christmas cards around this time of year, referring to the coming of Jesus. And then it goes on. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Referring there to when Jesus comes again. The fulfillment then, of this light motif, of the festival of lights, is found in the incarnation of Messiah, what we would call Christmas. Jump now to the life of Jesus, not as a baby, but when he was fully grown. When was it, do you think, that he wanted to reveal himself to the nation of Israel as the light of the world? It was on Hanukkah that he did this. Actually, it started on Sukkot, but remember Hanukkah and Sukkot are basically the same holiday in some respects. They follow, are connected to each other. In John chapter 8, during the Feast of Tabernacles, he said, I am the light of the world. And at this time in the Jewish mind, there's only one reference they could have made from this. This was a, the festival of lights that they're talking about here. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is claiming to be the fulfillment of all of those light prophecies that we just read from the book of Isaiah and places like that. We also know that in the temple, remember, they still had this massive menorah that they were lighting. That, too, pointed to Jesus Christ. And it would have had an immense impact because during the Feast of Sukkot, Around this time of year, they had what was called a massive lamp lighting ceremony in the courtyards of the temple, where they had these four huge 75 feet menorahs that would be lit up during this time of year. Josephus, the historian, records that these lights, the light from these menorahs, was so bright that it literally lit up the whole of Jerusalem. And if you can imagine, there's no electricity, obviously. If you were out on all the hills and the villages around, you would just see Jerusalem. This massive light shining up above it. The Lord, I believe, drawing us to understand these issues. Then again, in John 9, he says, I am the light of the world again to them. And then in John 10, we actually see the Feast of Hanukkah mentioned specifically in the New Testament. And it says this, at the time of the Feast of the Dedication. What's that? That's Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now what's interesting about this event, obviously the timing, of course, of it all making a point, revealing yourself as the light of the world during the season of lights, at the festival of lights, but also many of the priests around the priesthood there would have been the Sadducees, which if you remember from our introductory studies, they were Descendants of the Hasmoneans, who were descendants of the Maccabees. So he was actually be talking to this group of people here now. So they say to him, who are you, basically? But if you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Basically, if you're the Messiah, throw off the Roman rope that is oppressing us at this time. is what they want, but Jesus has other things in mind. When he says at the end, I and the Father are one, that's when they shout blasphemy and try to stone him. I want you to put your head into the mind of an Israelite at this time. It's the Feast of Hanukkah. Everything's a proud nationalism at this time, but yet they're still under Roman oppression. They're seeking someone like Judas Maccabee to come. One of the things that the Maccabees were known for when they were attacking these Greek soldiers is they would use the Shema of Israel, that verse from Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That was what they would shout as they were attacking So the reference here that Jesus is making is, again, he's using their own history in this respect to prove who he is. I and the Father are one. He is proving that he is actually not only the light of the world that Isaiah promised, he is also the true shepherd of Israel that was promised. And more than that, he is claiming to be none other than Yahweh of their creed from Deuteronomy. These, all of these lessons are coming from the Lord here. During this season, Jesus presented himself as the one true God who is the light of the world. However, we know the ultimate consummation of the missionary mission and ministry of Jesus did not stop in the first century. It's still going on today. All of us in the church, every, you know, every day all around the world, people are still being saved. People are still coming into the light. The, the, the light of the world is still drawing people from darkness. And ultimately, one day, the Bible promises that he will come back and that time it says, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for your brightness shall the moon shall give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Of course, in the days of the future kingdom. And when we look at all this history, there's a few things that the church should be doing. Firstly, we should be praying like the Apostle Paul for the salvation of Israel. Because ultimately, we don't want them to trust in a Judah Maccabee figure. We want them to trust in the true light of the world, their Messiah. We pray for them to know Jesus. We reveal to them the Messiah. Do you know that the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, one of the specific things that the Gentile church should be doing is living such an outward Christian life in love with the Jewish Messiah that the Jewish people look upon our faith and they get jealous of that. How come they're having such a wonderful relationship with our Messiah? And it's supposed to cause them to come to Messiah. But yet most of the churches that we see are joining forces, marching with the Pro Hamas fortress. Does that cause jealousy, do you think, or not? We have to think about these things. Our faith is not just a bunch of doctrines that we talk about in church. It plays out in this world. You see, it doesn't matter what flag appears in this world saying death to Judah. It could be the swastika, the green flag of Hamas with the Islamic creed on it. It could be the yellow flag of Hezbollah. It could be the flag there of the Roman legions that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, on and on you go. Many flags have come saying that. Many flags may come in the future saying that. Everyone will be answered by the light that says Judah will live forever. And we know that is true because the king of Judah lives forever. He is the eternal Lord Jesus Christ. One of his names is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the word of God has promised it. And for those in the church, mainly I would would say this too, who think that the land and the people are no longer significant. I know there's a lot of theological debate about that. Let me ask one question. To where did Jesus promise he would return? Was it London, Washington, Athens, big cities, place where all the Christians live? No. He promised he would return to Jerusalem. That fact and that fact alone tells you that it is not done. His purposes for Jerusalem are not done. In fact, he's very clear about this. There's a prophecy from the book of Zechariah, a book written hundreds of years before Jesus even existed. And it says, speaking of the final days, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Every flag from every Antiochus who calls himself a god, every false god that seeks the death of Judah, in that day when the king of kings comes, there will only be one name that people glorify, and it will be the name of Jesus. He will come to Jerusalem, to Israel, to rule the earth. And one more aside, who do you think he finds there when he comes? This is written in the Bible. Surprise, surprise, he finds Jewish people there in Jerusalem when he comes. You see, this is the promise of the word. The word. If what we are saying, this Christian worldview, this biblical Judeo-Christian worldview, is true, if it is the true reality like we are proposing, and there is an enemy who opposes God at every turn, he would not want Jesus to come back to Jerusalem to rule as king, because his time would be done then at that point. This is why you see such trouble around that one tiny slither of land in the Middle East where God has promised he will return. It all makes sense. That is why Satan has spent so long surrounding that entire area with a religion and nations that seek the destruction of Judah. That is Satan's plan. Little does he know the light will always answer. Judah will live forever. Yet the truth is more than that because the light of the world does not just promise that for Israel. The light of the world promises that everyone The light of the world has come for everyone, Jew and Gentile, so that they can all be rescued from the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of light. This is God. The beginning of John's Gospel, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was not the light, speaking of John the Baptist, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who comes into the world. And a little later, this John would would write in one of his epistles, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. That's a Hanukkah reference there in many ways. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The light of the world is still drawing all men, Jew, Gentile, into relationship with him, delivering all from darkness. Yes, his promises and purposes for Israel are not yet done. They are connected to the future. They are connected to the now. They're connected to the church. All of us now, as ambassadors of light, must speak the word of God, truth, into this culture. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash Apologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.